Now I'm reading John 1, 29 through 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Every great revival begins in the same way. It's the discovery of Jesus. Revivals don't begin when churches start building programs. Revivals don't begin when churches uh, decide that uh, they want to emphasize uh, uh, God rewarding us for our faith rather than us submitting to God in faith. God giving us what we want versus being willing to surrender and receive what God has for us. But it's all about Jesus. As the song we just said, there's something about that name. I had the great, great fortune of timing. You ever think about the timing of your life in terms of history? How you could have been born 500 years ago, 100 years ago, 20 years in the future, whatever it is. How greatly that affects who you are. Uh, There are days I wish I had lived 500 years ago. But when I get sick and need some medical care, I'm a little bit thankful that I live now. Uh, Although sometimes I think they might have known better back then. Uh, There are days when I'm so overloaded with technology and screens that I wish I could go back to the time when uh, there were just the three forms of communication. Uh, 
telegraph and telephone and tell Shirley or whoever, you know. Uh, uh, we're overloaded with these things now. But I thank God that I was born when I was born because I was able as a teenager to experience the Jesus movement, the Jesus explosion in this country. And I remember the first innocent uh, couple of years of that movement, Time Magazine put it on the cover of Time Magazine and featured it. It was having such a tremendous impact among the youth of this nation. And uh, it was really about just getting together. I can remember get together in the parking lot of McDonald's or to get together at somebody's house. Wherever it was, you got together you were talking about Jesus because all of a sudden there were people who realized even if they had grown up in the church that somehow Jesus was not the center of their church and they were just for the first time discovering this radical guy in the radicalism of the 60s and everybody talking about this is the way to peace and this is the way to peace and suddenly they began to listen to the Prince of Peace and it made a huge difference. And I was so glad I, 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 was, I was part of that and that's part of the, the the thing I have clung on to as I have grown older is do not forget that Jesus is the source of all revival. And we can't be revived as a church unless we go to Jesus. And I think that's part of our struggle in the United Methodist Church is we have tried all kinds of techniques. We've tried all kinds of emphases and Bible studies on different topics and everything. But we haven't tried Jesus. And that, I think, uh, is a tragedy. John comes preaching. He's just had an interview with the uh, priests and Sadducees from the temple. And they want to know who he is. Is he the one? Is he the Messiah? You know, because this matters to the temple people, the officers of the temple, because this could affect their power. This could affect their livelihood. It could affect everything. So they want to make sure they know who John is, and, and John the Baptist is. And, and I also think there was probably some sense of, can we co-opt him? In other words, can we get him to come and be an employee of the temple with us? Can the Messiah work for the temple? Who knows what was going through their heads? And, and John must have been filled with some sense of emotion after those interviews. Uh, I think uh, in the text, it seems he may have been a little bit uh, upset. And stressed by these interviews. And so then he goes out and says the next day, he sees Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And maybe he was relieved when he said that. That he could see before him the salvation of the world. Not just of Israel, but the entire world coming to him. I don't know how he said those words, but I would have loved to heard the way he said those words. And all of a sudden, he was freed from the politics and the power grabbing of the temple officials, and he was back in the face of truth, Jesus Christ, walking toward him. And then again in our passage, again he says, it says, the next day, again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. We're going to talk in a minute, I'm going to talk about what it means that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And I'm going to talk then a little later about what it means that He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. But it's interesting, John has these two disciples. 
And he says in their presence, Behold the Lamb of God. And it says the two disciples then went and followed Jesus. I don't know as a pastor if I want to be losing disciples, church members. I don't know if I want to give them over to someone else. But John knew his place. As much power as John could have dreamed of having. I mean, he attracted huge crowds to come out and he was baptizing them. He could have had anything he wanted, no doubt, if he had gone and worked with the temple officials and had cooperated with them. But instead, he knew his mission and his mission was to identify the Savior of the world. And he did that faithfully. Do we do that? Are we more concerned about other things than about pointing people to Jesus Christ? You know, uh, when I, I heard Lamb of God, and I started thinking about why is it Lamb of God? Why is it not the goat of God? Why is it not, why is it not which sounds terrible, but why is it not something else? And so I began to do a little, little research into uh, lambs versus goats. Versus dogs, versus cats, versus lions, whatever it may have been. Why a lamb? It was very interesting. Uh, I never have raised sheep myself. I see them out in the field. Sheep always look sort of docile to me, like they're, they're on their good behavior. Uh, I, I raised goats, which are not on good behavior. Goats are individualistic. Goats are uh, headstrong. Goats want to do what they want to do. I've been butted in the head by, by a, a ram who, you know, they, they raise up, they buck up, and they come right down on you. None of this running from a far distance like a sheep, a ram. Uh, sheep will do and come at you uh, with a straight run. Uh, goats are, are interesting creatures. And we had, we had a farm and we had them for about a decade. I had these goats. And uh, go ahead and show the picture, Lydia. Uh, and you're looking and you're saying, well, that's not a goat. Look at that hair on him. Look at that, look at that wool you're probably seeing. But that's hair. That's mohair. And those are Angora, that's an Angora goat who has just moments before given birth to this baby. And uh, you can even see if you look close a little bit of the afterbirth and everything in there. I actually, in the next picture, kind of cleaned things up. I did a little thing. So, so I thought, well, I'm not sure I should show that to the church. Uh, but uh, there's the mom. And uh, next picture. And there's the mom, and this is the baby shower they had after. So, It was interesting. My son took these pictures, and uh, he, there are some other pictures in the series of pictures here. But it was interesting. All the goats came up out of curiosity. Uh, goats, uh, they kind of like being around each other, but at the same time, you don't get the sense they're really coming up. Oh, how sweet and everything. You know, they're just kind of coming up and saying, what's this? You know, what, what dropped out of her? You know, so, uh, and normally our goats were born in the barn. We would take them, if we knew that the, that the, they were kidding, we, we would bring them into the, uh, barns. But this one happened to be a late one later in the spring than normal and went out and was, was surprised by this one. But the, uh, uh, goats are genetically very close to, to sheep. Very little difference between them. But in terms of their attitude, their personality. Very different. And this is why John doesn't say, behold the goat of God. Or behold the kid of God. Oh, which reminds me of, of, of a little story I heard the other day that the uh, uh, nanny goat uh, said to her husband, I'm pregnant. And her husband, Billy Goat, said, you're kidding. 
Okay. Okay. So, so okay. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody left the church this morning after I said that they did. We'll, we'll never see him again. Um, so in any event, so obviously a, a, a baby goat is a kid, and uh, uh, but the goats just have a bad reputation. So Jesus is the Lamb of God because of the qualities of sheep. If you if you had a sheep, if I'd ever had a sheep, I might know this: that sheep tend to be docile, just like they appear out in the field. That they are uh, submissive. That they are led by their shepherd, and they seem to enjoy being led by their shepherd. Uh, sheep are the kind, whoever is in front, who's ever the alpha in front of them, they're going to go wherever they lead. Uh, some people would say right off a cliff. Whereas a goat is much more individualistic, and they're going to go find their own stuff. A goat uh, may, uh, you know, just go and eat whatever they want. They're, they're browsers, you know, looking around. They, they might prefer the trash over something in the, in the uh, field. Uh, whereas sheep are grazers, so they're going to graze an area, and they, and they crop it very short. You ever hear the uh, the uh, the wars out uh, the uh, the open range wars out in the uh, out west in America? There were people killed over this because the people farmers brought in sheep, and it wasn't it, it, it ruined the pasture for the cows. And then the sheep farmers started putting up fences, and and uh, the fences were torn down, and it was quite a thing. Um, so uh, sheep have this reputation of being submissive to the shepherd. They are led by the shepherd. They show a humility before God, and it's even uh, physically a sheep's uh, uh, tail go- lays down, whereas the goat's tail is sticking straight up. There is that arrogance versus the humility. So in every way, when, a, when somebody in ancient Israel looked at a sheep versus a goat, they saw the attributes of the sheep as being that should be the attributes of God's people. We should be humble before God. We should be willing to be led by God. We should be willing uh, in all things to trust in God. And that was the way they saw the sheep's relationship to the shepherd. And then you have the shepherd very often was a hero in, in, in biblical literature in the Old Testament. David, King David, had been a shepherd. They saw something noble about it, even though you wouldn't want to hang around the shepherds very much because they stunk so much. But still, there was something about a shepherd who would go off and leave uh, the 99 to find the one lost sheep. The shepherd who would, who would fight predators to defend the lives of his sheep. And so Jesus is, is given the title both of Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd in the New Testament. Both roles. He is the Lamb of God. Innocent and trusting, following the will of his Father, and he is the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. And so there's that very interesting uh, phrase there that the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called anything. It's not, there's the Messiah, there's the Savior, uh, there's the King of Kings, there's the Lord of Lords, but it is, there is the Lamb of God. And that ties into the fact that, you, that in ancient Israel, there was the sacrifice of animals. And the sacrifice of animals, especially at Passover, about a million lambs would be, would be slaughtered just in Jerusalem for the Passover meals. And uh, those, those lambs had to be unblemished. They had to be the cream of the crop. 
And then for a, a, a lamb to be used there, the reason they had to be the cream of the crop, crop, the unblemished lamb, was because they were portraying the story of the Passover, where the blood of a lamb was put over the doorpost of a home and that the angel of death passed over and the firstborn males were spared death. And we see how that ties in then with, with the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God who comes and gives his life, and we are saved by his blood, just as those children were by the blood of the Lamb. And so uh, this is a, a beautiful image that the Scriptures use, and it's interesting because it's used all through the Old Testament, and then it comes into the New Testament, and Jesus is the answer. He's the fulfillment. He is that final Lamb of God who will finally bring us redemption from our sins. Now, the other part of what John says, the first time he says, Behold the Lamb of God, he says, Who takes away the sin of the world. That's the other part I wanted to to talk about for just a moment here, is uh, if we go through the New Testament, you are going to find numerous places where it talks about how Jesus' death has affected us, that we have been justified, redeemed, and reconciled because of his death. Uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. In Jesus' death, we find eternal life. Whether we are in this life or another life, we are with him. 1 Peter 3, For Christ also died for sins for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We are alive in the Spirit. Our spirits were dead before Jesus Christ. You know, in baptism, our two sacraments that the, in the United Methodist Church, we recognize baptism and the Lord's Supper as our two sacraments. Both of those have commonality in that they proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we know the Scriptures say, as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim Jesus Christ until he comes again. But also in baptism, especially in the immersive uh, uh, mode of baptism, you see this more plainly. But I believe it's any time you come under the water of Jesus Christ, however that's done. But you are buried with Christ in baptism. You are buried into his death, Paul says. But then you are raised anew. So imagine it's, it's like the grave of water and you're brought forth into new life. And so both of the sacraments focus upon this idea that Christ died for us, that we might live again. Again, bringing to us the centrality of the death of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins in Scripture, and why that should be central to the church. I read something recently, there's a very successful pastor, successful in terms of numbers and reputation, and and the books he sells and everything else, out in California. Uh, Francis Chan is his name. He's a Chinese-American and uh, uh, Francis said that he, he was over in India, and he talked to a pastor there, and he said, in India, uh, the communion table is the center of our worship. We come together to meet Christ in the cup and in the loaf. But he said, I noticed that in the United States, it's the preacher and the music that people come for. And that struck Francis, and 
You know, a lot of preachers answered. I looked at the comments after <laughs> his remarks, and I think pastors got really defensive, like they were being attacked because people were coming to hear them preach. But I understand what he was saying. Jesus is the center of worship. If we're worshiping a pastor or preacher or, 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 or the choir, all three of them this morning, or four or five, I'll include you all. We'll, we'll, I had a hard time finding a place. There you go. But if we're doing that, we've got our focus in the wrong place. Over and over, I mean, I've got, I've got many, many scriptures I could read to you here out of the New Testament alone that talk about how we benefit from the death of Jesus Christ. And of course, we talk about the risen Lord, the resurrection. But there's no resurrection without a death. And there's no defeat of death without the resurrection. It's all one thing together. But we need to be more centered upon Jesus Christ if we expect revival and recognize what he did for us as the Lamb of God who took away our sin. The other place I'm going to go in the few minutes that I have left is, is to, uh, to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, in, in ancient Israel, in the Old Testament, we see animal sacrifice being used. Uh, this scripture here I'm going to, uh, I, I think this chapter is a beautiful explanation of what animal sacrifice meant in the temple in the time before Christ. He begins with, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So everything that took place in the Old Testament was a shadow of the realities that were to come. They were a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. They were foreshadowing of his death, of his resurrection, of our deliverance. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeat, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Because it's just a shadow, because it's not reality, all of those actions of, of animal sacrifice could not bring to us forgiveness. They could not achieve for us what could only come through the perfect Lamb of God. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? In other words, if, if, if one sacrifice did it all in the Old Testament, why did they have to keep doing this over and over and over? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. In other words, they weren't for deliverance from sins, but they were a reminder to us that we had, had sinned. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Talking about God. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, the Son of God to his Father, Here I am. I have come to do your will, my God. Again, that emphasis upon doing the will of the shepherd. Doing the will of God. By that will, by the will of Jesus Christ, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of his body once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. 
For by one sacrifice, his sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. That this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. But not until Jesus Christ has died on that cross. He comes and he takes away the sin of the world. I'm not... I'm not sure why that doesn't penetrate our hearts more. Why we don't get excited more about that. Why we don't think more about the kind of God who would extend that measure of grace and love to us. Sinners. While we were yet sinners. To offer His Son for us. This is the God of the universe. He can do anything. Some people have said, well, he could have just gotten all the evil out of the world and then we would all be fine. But the problem was that we were part of the evil of the world. And to get rid of evil in this world, he would have to get rid of us. But rather than do that, he was willing to send his son to die for us. That is the glory. That is the good news. That is the heart of revival when we get that into our hearts and into our minds and recognize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. And amen. We're going to sing our song of discipleship. And uh, the question this morning for us is, do we love Jesus? Do we love, love Him? Are we confident in our relationship with Him and know that He is ours? Do we love Him to the point where we would take away something out of our daily lives so that we might spend some time with him. When you love somebody, you want to spend time with them. When you love somebody, you want to spend time with them. Are we spending time with Jesus? And are we recognizing that if we begin to do that as a church, as a congregation, as a cumulative effect of that, there could be revival. And we could be the church that God has called us to be. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. We love Jesus because without him, we're lost. And when he's with us, we are safe. May we all go with Jesus this morning, walking in his steps and knowing that he is always with us, loving him and letting him know of our great love for him, praying to our Father above, a prayer of thanksgiving that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. May we go in his peace. And amen.